Good evening, everyone. Glad you're here. Seems like since the beginning of the church, there has been a lot of discussion concerning the topics of the supernatural, like healing and speaking in tongues and prophesying. And through the decades, it has created a lot of discussion and a lot of confusion. Maybe you heard about the guy who came forward after the sermon at church, and he told the minister, I need prayer for my hearing. And before he knew it, the preacher had his hands on his ears and was praying for his hearing to be restored. And so after the prayer, the preacher asked the man, so how's your hearing now? And he said, I don't know. It's not until next Wednesday at the courthouse. But thanks for your prayers. Confusion over these topics isn't just limited to churches in our culture. It started, you might say, from day one, especially in the first century. We're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, you're going to need one, and there should be a blue one in the pew, and you can pull that out so you can follow along. We're not going to be looking at every single verse in chapter 14, but we're going to look at several key verses. And so it'll be important for you to have your own Bible and to be able to look and and to follow along. Paul was concerned because their worship gatherings evidently had, well, gotten out of control. People were interrupting each other. They were shouting out. They had words of prophecy to give. Uh, Some were launching into speaking in tongues. Chaos comes to mind. But I wonder if that was a kind word for what was going on with the church at Corinth. Anyone who was visiting their gatherings, their worship time, investigating Christianity would have gone away just confused and perplexed and just sort of a, I don't know what that was. Uh, Because obviously it was pandemonium. I want us to look tonight in our study at two primary issues. If you've got a study guide, you're going to see this, that were causing confusion. And then apply these principles to worship that even today we can learn from. But before I do that, I want to define a few terms and make sure we understand what words are being used in this chapter. So to begin with, I want to give you a definition of the gift of speaking in tongues. This is the speak in a foreign language that you've never studied. And what an amazing gift that would have been. This miraculous ability to speak in foreign language was first given to the apostles in Acts 2. And you think about that setting. You had people from all over the world who had gathered in Jerusalem. People of all different uh, 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 languages. And so for them to preach the gospel and for everyone to hear in their own tongue, they needed this miraculous ability to speak in tongues. And everybody was encouraged by it. Paul says here in our text, look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So our goal as Christians isn't self-gratification. It isn't just to show off, to reveal to others how much we know or how spiritual we are. It's to build up the body of Christ. And the reason Paul spends so much time on this topic is because I get the idea when you read through this book and especially this chapter that the worship assembly was losing their structure so much, taking on more of what commentaries would say like a carnival. And you would wonder what really is going on here rather than a time of reverence and worship where God was the focus. So Paul hits it head on and he says, this is a good gift, but keep it in perspective. Basically, this is a summary of what Paul is saying. 
and I put this on your outline, the edification of the body of Christ is more important than showing off your gift. So do things in an orderly way. He makes this point over and over again. And hopefully that gives us an explanation of speaking in tongues along with the context of the shared advice in the chapter. Now let me give you another definition. Um, the gift of prophecy. This means simply to speak on God's behalf. Literally, it means to speak God's word. Now, I say that because when we hear the term prophecy, most of us in our minds, we think of predicting or foretelling the future. And that's part of prophecy, but that's not the whole meaning of the word. That's just one meaning. It really just means simply speaking the words of God. So in New Testament times, the Holy Spirit gave people the miraculous gift to prophecy, which means they could share God's specific words to the people at the time. And what was being talked about here in 1 Corinthians 14. Now today, we have the complete Bible, especially the New Testament that they did not have. So we don't need people speaking what God has given them in some kind of special revelation. So if we speak of someone today having the gift of prophecy, what we're referring to is the ability of somebody to speak God's word, to teach God's word. Because that's what a prophet is. They're sort of a, the voice of God. And we need to think of it in that way, not in a miraculous sense. So today the Holy Spirit gives some that ability. They can preach. They can teach. You ever known somebody that whenever there's a setting, it seems like they know a scripture that speaks to that. And they can share. That's the gift of prophecy. Sharing scripture with others. But also, we have the benefit of the complete New Testament. They didn't have that in the church of Corinth. So they needed this supernatural gift of prophecy. Their sharing is more miraculous because all they had was the Old Testament. None of the new. Obviously, they got this letter and that became a part of it. But our sharing, our prophesying, is a result of Bible study. It's a result of our reading the Word. It's our preparation. And of course, and all of that is inspired, directed by the Holy Spirit. So for us, it might be in Bible class or home Bible study. It could be referring to somebody who's speaking here in, in our church. It also might be in a spiritual or, or a scriptural discussion that you might have with a friend over lunch. Maybe it's a co-worker who asks you advice about marriage. And you've got a choice. You can tell them what everybody else is saying and doing and thinking. Or you could speak to them God's truth. That is the sense prophesying. You're speaking for God. You're telling them God's wisdom, God's counsel. In fact, did you notice what Paul says here? Look at verse 14, verse 31. He says, For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So, obviously, in the context of worship, there were a few that would be in a position of leadership that would teach. But he also mentions here, it's not just for those who are up front, that all of us can do that in that setting. Sometimes you might hear, if you've ever taught a class, or maybe you've spoken... Where somebody say, you know, you said exactly what I needed to hear. Or they might even say, did you have my house bugged? Because I really needed that. I believe that is God's spirit working. That teacher prepared a lesson not knowing your house isn't bugged. But that's God's working because you needed to hear that. That's where you are. That's how God works in us teaching 
and listening. One author explained there are two reasons why God gave the gift of prophecy. One is the strengthening of believers. Look there in, your, in, in chapter 14, the very first verse. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. In verse 3, for everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So it's not about you. It's not about showing off. It's about building up the church. So the reason to desire this gift is so that you can be a blessing to others. It has the capacity to strengthen and to encourage and to equip. Well, a second purpose of prophecy is as a signpost. Not an original term for me, but I think it fits. It's a signpost for the unbelievers. There can be an evangelistic dimension to this gift of prophecy. Lost people can be brought face to face with the truth of Scripture. To hear it with their own ears. Paul explains it this way. Look in chapter 14, verse 24 and 25. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his hearts will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So this gift of prophecy for the unbeliever would be a point of revelation, of learning of God, of hearing the truth, of being convicted of the gospel. That the truth is, is there. God is really among you. So God can use the spoken word to pierce the depths of that seeker, that unbeliever, that one who doesn't know the message, can learn the message. You read this chapter, and you get the idea that when the church came, to God, when the church came together, Paul expected the gift of prophecy to be used. That was kind of part of the gathering. I think that's why he spends so much time talking about this in chapter 14. So you might even summarize the whole chapter is when you worship the Lord together, you do so in a fitting and orderly way. We'll talk about that more in a moment. I want to divide our study, the rest of it, into to two parts. Uh, first, um, the distractions in worship and then we're going to talk about some principles of worship. So first, the distractions in worship. You know, every culture, every season has its own set of circumstances that the church has to navigate and, and try to figure out how do we do this? How do we respond to this? Especially when it comes to worship. And each one can, can lead to disorder. So I want to look at two issues that for the church at Corinth evidently were causing quite a bit of stir. A lot of trouble. And so Paul hits it head on. First, there were numerous people speaking in tongues in the early church. And that's why I think he mentions this. Now, don't misunderstand this. By itself, in that setting, it would not have been a problem for the Corinthians. But here they're misusing the gift. And that's what he calls them out for. Paul suggests limiting the number to just a couple, or maybe three at the most provided that there's someone there who also has the supernatural gift of interpretation. Look at a couple of verses with me. Look in chapter 14, verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will it be to you unless I bring, some, bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And the next couple of verses, he gives some examples. Then in verse 9, so it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. 
And then look at verse 12. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. So the message has to be meaningful to the listener. If the Corinthians used this gift and there's no one there to interpret, he said all that would do would be to draw attention to yourself. That's not going to build anybody up. That's not going to teach anybody anything. They're not going to be blessed by that. They may be impressed by you, but it's all about you. And it's not about building up the church. It would be like us having this beautiful worship space and not having a sound system. You know, man, this is a great building. Did you hear what I'm saying? It, it just, it, why come if you can't hear? You ever been to an event when the sound system wasn't working and you get so frustrated, you just want to leave because it just, it's more frustrating than edifying. You so desperately want to be a part. Perhaps that's the best way that we can appreciate what speaking in tongues would have been like if you didn't have somebody there to interpret for them. Why the need for speaking in tongues? When the church began, I think its purpose was to validate God's plan. God's plan prior to the completion of the New Testament. There was so much for them to learn. There were some who were coming into Judaism, and there was some good in that they were going to keep, but even more they needed to learn about this Jesus, what it meant to follow Him. And there were those who didn't have that background in Judaism, and, and, and they were starting from scratch. And who is God? And, and who is this Jesus? And what does it mean to follow Him? But also notice this, that not everyone spoke in tongues. And speaking in tongues was not proof that you had the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul demanded that those with the gift to control themselves. So there are some today who teach that if you do not speak in tongues, then you're not really spirit-filled. But you don't find that in Scripture. If that were the case, Paul would be encouraged everyone to speak in tongues. But if you read through the chapter, that's not what he's saying. He's encouraging everybody to prophesy, but he's not encouraging everybody to speak in tongues. He felt strongly that prophecy, preaching, teaching was more important. And Paul recommended to these people to be sensitive to unbelievers and their negative reaction if it's all about the show. I think a key verse is 1 Corinthians 14. Look at 18 and 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now that's a powerful statement. Just five. That's all he had to make. The Corinthians evidently were sort of being distracted, drawn off sides, maybe enamored by these people who had the gift of, of speaking in tongues, thinking maybe they were more spiritual, or, or maybe I could have that gift, and I could be impressive, and I could grow, or I could... whatever. They seem to be caught off just chasing after this. And so Paul writes this chapter and kind of brings them back to what's most important. Well, there's another distraction, and that was women speaking out when the church had gathered. Now, fasten your seatbelts on this passage. Look at chapter 14, verse 33 and following. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. 
for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Some would read that passage and say that Paul was one huge male chauvinist pig. Why would he say something so demeaning to women? But before you jump to quick judgment on Paul, think about other things that he said that were so affirming of women and liberating of women. Just like Jesus who came and was able to help the women in the culture that were a second-class citizen, sometimes even a property, Jesus spoke truth that they had value. In essence, they were equal with men. And Paul does the same thing. Think of his words in Galatians 3, 26-28. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. So the common thread is faith. The common experience is baptism. And what he teaches us in this passage is in God's eyes, they're all equal. Now, the roles may be different, but their value is the same, regardless of their gender. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how do we reconcile these affirming words of Paul to what he says here in 1 Corinthians 14 that on the surface seem to be rather demeaning? Well, anytime you're going to try to get the real meaning of a text, you have to look at the setting and understand the context of what's going on. At this time, these Christians, most of whom were formerly Christian, I mean Jewish men, they had grown up all of their life in the, adult, in, in, the, in the Jewish synagogue. So they were accustomed to having an interchange with a rabbi who would be teaching there. David Stern has become my go-to trying to understand these kinds of, of teachings that have in their roots the, the, the Jewish history. He's a Messianic Jew who lives in Jerusalem. He explained it this way. Back in chapter 7, if you remember, Paul makes the statement, opening chapter 7, now concerning the things you wrote about. So this whole letter is response to, there's some Christians in Corinth that said, we got problems. We got problems with this, we got problems with this, we got problems with this, we need your help. And so Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to help them with this. David says, in his opinion, this is one of those issues. He believes this is one of the problems that they wrote about, so he's giving the answer. Here's what David Stern says. Evidently, the Corinthian Christians had asked about wives discussing with the husbands what was being said while it was being said. That would disturb decorum, even if the wife were sitting next to her husband. But, and now listen to this, if the universal Jewish practice of the time and the Orthodox congregations today was followed, wherein women and men are seated separately in the synagogue... It would be obviously be intolerable to have wives and husbands yelling at each other across the dividing wall. And then he goes on. The Talmud reports that one early uh, second century rabbi said this, quote, the men came to learn and the women came to hear. The men came to learn, but the women came to hear. To learn in Judaism is to study by discussing and thus understand fully, he explains, because one's questions get answered. But to hear is to listen to the interchange 
but not participate. Another commentator explained it like this, said that for a woman to have spoken in that public worship setting would have looked as if she were being rebellious to her husband. So at that time, in that setting, Paul states what needed to be said so that worship service would be in order, so things would go well. Think about it. Regardless of the gender, it would be distracting in a worship gathering for anyone to speak out, asking questions while the teaching was going on or, or whatever. So that, that's kind of a, a, a given here. I think it's worth saying. But everything Paul is saying is leading up to the last line of the chapter, 1 Corinthians fourteen forty. If you're an underliner, you need to underline verse 40. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And in that culture, for the women to begin speaking out in worship setting would have been such a deviation from the norm that the disruption would have, uh, would have been bothersome. In fact, it would have impeded the gospel message. So Paul is trying to remove any chance of the interruption so the message can come through. But again, remember verse 40. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I can't read that verse without thinking of E. Claude Gardner the president of Fried Hardeman when I was a student, it seems like every day at chapel, I guess he wanted us to walk out quietly, but he would quote, let everything be done decently and in order. I thought it was about chapel for four years. I didn't know it. I knew it was more than about chapel. But I still hear his words when I read this verse. The worship principle is that we should not allow things in worship that in our culture would be disruptive, rebellious, or distracting from the message of the gospel. And the takeaway for us has to be that when you come into worship, make certain that your preferences, your personal worship is not impeding somebody else's, but instead you try to enhance their. You're not flamboyantly calling attention to yourself by the way you sing, by the way you, you celebrate God, but you're also mindful of others. Someone asked me how I feel about people raising their hands in worship. I would say, you know, my thinking about that, my understanding of that, I believe God's more interested in our hearts than our hands. And anything you can do can be truly in worship to God, like raising hands. And it could be a show-off. It could be done for distraction. So with that, you've got to guard your heart. The Bible does tell us to raise holy hands. But if you're doing that, why are you doing that? If you're doing that to the Lord, do it to the Lord. But just make sure you're not impeding somebody else. Do it in a fitting and orderly way. Or as Eklaw would quote the King James, decently and in order. What are some principles of worship? Let me share just a few of these as we close. Number one, worship should include biblical teaching. If you read through this chapter, this is a for sure takeaway. When the church gathered, Paul expected that to happen. And when you read prophecy, you may want to write it out in your Bible, in your notes, kind of remind yourself of this. In our context, think biblical teaching, biblical preaching. One side note on that. You may have heard me say this before, but sometimes people refer to the work of the Holy Spirit as if you, know, you might prepare for a class, you might prepare for a lesson, and then you might go off on a tangent, and it wasn't in your notes. You said the Holy Spirit just filled me, and gave me the words to say. And I believe that can happen. 
I believe God can work that way. That you didn't plan that. It wasn't prepared. But at that moment, God's Spirit brought that thought to mind. And you were able to speak those words. But I think we are in error if we think God's Spirit only works impromptu or beyond our preparation. Does God not also work through His Spirit when somebody is studying for a lesson for hours and hours preparing? I believe He inspires and works more then than just that spur of the moment bringing something to mind. And I don't think it's necessary for a preacher or a teacher in a formal setting. I think we can, again, all be used by the Spirit of God to speak His truth to someone. That's what the Bible is telling us here. In fact, all the spiritual gifts mentioned in Paul's letter, the gift of prophecy is the one that Paul talks about the most. Not so much in some supernatural, miraculous way, but for everybody. You know Scripture. And the Scripture you know, then you are equipped to share that with others, to speak. For example, someone ask you for some a, a discussion, you know, maybe you're at work and, and they get this email for somebody and they're all angry. You might say, you know, be slow to speak, slow to anger. Where's that come from? Well, I got that jewel out of Scripture. It helps me sometimes, especially when I get an angry email. You may have the moment to speak God's truth to some person at just the right time. Well, number two, worship should edify the entire body. Again, you get this message throughout the chapter. Verse 5, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather you have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so the church may be edified. Speaking in tongues would be fantastic. There's no denying that. But the goal is edification. And think about it. There's different foods that you eat. Some of them you enjoy a whole lot more than others. But the goal is for each meal to nourish you, to do your body good. On any given Sunday, there may be a song that just speaks to your heart, or, or maybe a, a sermon or a passage that just pricks where you are, and it just really resonates with you. Or it may be on a given Sunday that the songs are okay, and the message is okay, but the intent is for all of us to benefit and to be strengthened. But either way, the result should be, should be the same. It's not about each of us having a spiritual high every time. It's for all of us to look out for each other and to be edified. And frankly, think about the incredible challenge it is, if you're a song leader, to pick out a song that everybody likes. It's impossible. How do you teach a lesson? to a group that's so diverse in age and background and spiritual appetites and interests. But hopefully the result of our worship time together, everyone is fed, everyone is nourished, everyone is edified. So the worship points to Christ, not the song leader, not the speaker. Number three, worship should attract unbelievers to Jesus. I think that's a point worth noting in this chapter. Verse 22, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbeliever comes in, will they not say you're out of your mind? I think this passage tells us that the church needs to be aware of how somebody who's not from a church background feels when they come into our gathering. 
They may not understand how we do things. And some churches don't think about that at all. And so a lot of their talk is churchy talk. And so the guests who come in and they're investigating Christianity, they're so lost because they don't understand our ways and our terms and the way we do things. And they, they might leave confused rather than inspired. And other churches kind of go the other extreme. And they do everything to cater to the seeker. In fact, they call themselves seeker-driven churches. So they would never go through a series on 1 Corinthians and teach Bible this in-depth, this, this detailed, because it might be a turnoff for someone who doesn't understand Scripture at all. But Paul mentions here the goal is the conviction of the unbeliever. We're not here to entertain unbelievers and so that hopefully, maybe, they'll catch hold of Jesus. We're here to lift up Jesus to teach them about salvation so that they too can have eternal life. And churches may differ in how they go about it, but the ultimate desire is that truth is preached so that people can hear the truth and go to heaven. So we don't apologize for sharing Scripture and opening the Bibles and studying. And then number four, finally, worship should be orderly, not chaos. Not even just impromptu. In fact, the root of Paul's phrase, fitting and orderly way, has at its core the idea of preparation. There's a bit of plan to it. Now, it may be a different plan next week. It doesn't have to be the same way every time and the same way in every context or every location. But it's not just thrown together. It's well thought out. The Spirit of God has been involved in every step of the planning and prayer and preparation for that hour. This past week, someone asked me how much time I spend preparing a sermon. It's hard to answer. Because sometimes it can be 20 to 30 hours. You wonder why the sermons take 40 minutes. That's why. But that's unusual. Usually it's more like 10 to 15. It takes a lot of time to study well. Song leaders spend a lot of time selecting their songs. Those of us who don't lead singing, we have no clue how much time and energy, just think, not this one, not that one, what's the flow like, what's the pitch, does the church know this, how many new, how many old, does this get our hearts to the throne, every nuance of that. I believe all that we do for the Lord deserves our best. In singing, in teaching, in all that we do in worship, we want to remove any distractions, anything that would cause confusion. Make sure everything that we choose to do is edifying the body. I think that's the message of the chapter. So that when you come to worship, you come with a sense of anticipation. You want to see people. You're eager. Who's going to be there today? I'm looking forward to them. You're looking out for a guest. I don't know them. I need to go and introduce myself. You're eager to sing. You're eager to pray. You're eager to learn. That's what you come for. But above all, it's going to be done, in Paul's words, in a fitting and orderly way. We're worshiping the God of the universe. Several years ago, the executives at Disney World were surprised to learn that some of their guests were leaving their park disappointed. And you'd wonder, how can you go to Disney World and walk away disappointed? I mean, that just seems to be the greatest place on earth, right? Well, they asked a few questions to find out what was the source of their disappointment. And, and they said, well, you know, 
they wanted to see Mickey Mouse. I mean, that's what their kids wanted to see. And they went all over the park and they never saw Mickey Mouse. And so they left. And, and the children were so sad. And the parents were like, well, we just did all this, spent all this money. But, they, but I didn't see Mickey Mouse. And so the executives at Disney came up with a solution. They made every day a parade. And guess who's the Grand Marshal? So anyone who wanted to see the main attraction could see him. I think that Disney discovery applies to worship as well. You know, we come to worship for so many reasons. You may come because you're lonely. You may come because you feel guilty. Maybe you're searching. Maybe it's out of habit. It's just kind of what you do. Whether you realize it or not, the number one reason to come to worship is to connect with God. That's why you come to worship. It's not about the song leader. It's not about the greeter. It's for sure not about the preacher. His name is Jesus. When you come here to worship, it's all of our responsibility to help each other to see Him. It's my prayer that you never leave disappointed. That the message is not about me. The songs are not about the song leader. It's about God. It's about pointing to Him. Because here's what we know. A preacher's going to let you down. Your elder's going to let you down. Staff's going to let you down. Other volunteers at church, they're going to let you down. We're all human. But God will never let you down. He never fails. He can meet your needs. And He can save your soul. If you've never turned your life over to Jesus, He came to give you life eternal life. And we want to give you an opportunity to name the name of Jesus. Have your sins washed away in baptism. We always have the water ready. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.